Hey, this episode was brought to you by the iBiomed program at McMaster University. Follow Mac iBiomed or stick around for more info. Determining the size of molecules, solving the puzzling occurrence known as the photoelectric effect, proposing the special theory of relativity, and so much more. Would we ever think that the scientist behind such remarkable discoveries was riddled with self-doubt? Turns out, not even Albert Einstein was immune to the effects of what is now known as imposter syndrome, a universal phenomenon that affects so many of us today. He once said, The exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler, where a swindler is defined as a person who uses deception to deprive someone of money or possessions. Research shows that 40-70% to of the individuals in the world experience imposter syndrome at some point in our lives. So why can't so many of us shake feelings that we haven't earned our accomplishments, or that our ideas and skills aren't worthy of others' attention? Welcome back to Brainwaves. I'm Danny. And I'm Imreen. And today, we're here to discuss the persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved, commonly known as imposter syndrome. Now, there are many internal and external factors which may be a cause of our imposter syndrome. Maybe it's the competitive program or job that we're in, and we don't feel we're qualified to be in that position. Maybe it's a hyperproductive society that we live in, which tells us to tie our self-worth to our output and our productivity, as opposed to our value as real human beings. Now, whatever the reason is, and no matter what status we hold, many of us experience this. Maya Angelou once said, I have written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find me out now. Yeah, honestly, I think we'd be surprised if we really knew how many of our favorite people that we look up to or hold in high regard actually feel this way. I remember I was watching a Emma Watson interview, the girl who plays Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, and she once confessed that the older she got and the more experienced she was with the acting world, that she almost felt more like an imposter, saying that it's almost like the better I do, the more my feeling of inadequacy actually increases because I'm just going, any moment someone's going to find out I'm a total fraud and I don't deserve any of what I've achieved. Yeah, and many of us really feel that way. So with that being said, we have Dr. Will Huggin joining us on the show today. Dr. Huggin is a professor in the Department of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Behavior at McMaster, as well as a special lecturer at UFT. He's here to give us some more information about imposter syndrome. Welcome to the show, Dr. Huggin. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So thank you again, Dr. Huggin, for joining us today. We'd love if you could help define exactly what imposter syndrome might be for those of us who are not aware of what it entails, and perhaps also provide some telltale signs of someone uh, who might have it. Certainly. So it's been pretty well researched. I should mention that it's it's kind of part of abnormal or personality psychology, um, but it's not technically a clinical diagnosis. It's not in the Diagnostic or Statistical Manual of Psychology, but it is related to a lot of um, personality psychology, a lot of outcomes with that self-esteem and esteem needs. So if anyone out there is familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's kind of this idea that, you know, we need food, water, shelter, and we need to feel love and we need to feel... Anyway, the fourth level is the are these esteem needs. And it's this it includes self-worth, accomplishments, uh, and respect. And there's kind of two categories for this. The one would be esteem for yourself. So wanting to have dignity or achievement, mastery, things like that. 
And the other one is about your reputation. So what do other people think of you? You know, what's your status? What's your prestige level? And sometimes when people are quite rightly highly regarded, you know, they, they've got a high education or um, they're really amazing at baking or building a car or, you know, something, all right, that they have accolades for. They've maybe, you know, their, their colleagues recognize that they're one of the best or they've got awards. For some reason, you can start to believe that you're not really deserving of that achievement. And this, this is what the basics of imposter syndrome is. Yeah. So w- with that being said, why do you think that this kind of happens? You know, they might be the best at building a car or baking a cake or whatever it is. What do you think causes them to feel that they're not in the position that they deserve? Well, you can start to feel like a fraud or that you're getting away with, you know, getting these awards because they think their accomplishments are due to external reasons rather than internal reasons. So, you know, even though they're highly skilled, they think, well, maybe I just lucked out or I had really good timing or, um, you know, even though I put all the energy in and I tried hard, it was still a fluke that I that I got this, you know, and you can imagine from the point of view of students that in high school, there's a huge range of students and accomplishment, right? Um, You know, from very low end, don't care at all, not doing any work, all the way up into kind of the really high, very accomplished students. And then the thing is, is that when you go onto your next step in life, the people who are at that high, high end, they're the ones that meet the cutoffs to get into college, to get into university, to go and do an apprenticeship, whatever it is. So now, instead of competing with kind of everyone in the general population, you're competing with, you know, people who are really elite. And it's almost like, am I better than these people? You know, am I, did I get here by mistake? Is it kind of, you know, a fluke or luck? You know, maybe everyone's better than me. And, you know, I've got to really hide it. Um, And people don't talk about it. And the, the funny thing is, is that a lot, a lot of my students feel that way, but they usually think that they're the only one that feels that way. Um, Definitely. And you mentioned an interesting kind of bottleneck effect where it's like a more narrowing pool of candidates who would potentially have this. Um, So with that being said, does it always kind of present the same individuals or are there actually different types of imposter syndrome? There's different types. Um, there's There's an idea in personality psychology of explanatory styles and locus of control. And there's this idea that we start imagining that, and again, you can see how this would naturally occur. You come into a new, you know, school, uh, a new job, a new something, and you don't know all the ropes and you're trying to to get through and you can start, you start seeing that potentially this isn't under my control. Maybe, you know, this is someone else is doing this. You know, I, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I have to rely on others. And then you start feeling like, oh, am I going to you know, fail out of school? Am I going to get fired? You know, there's some personality traits that are involved with imposter syndrome. So three big ones are neuroticism, perfectionism, and then also a struggle with self-efficacy. So with neuroticism, if you're not familiar with that, you know, a lot of people have heard of neuroticism, but it's always thought of as a bad thing. It's not necessarily. It's all of these things are continuums uh, on a spectrum. And if you've got a little bit of neuroticism, you know, so neuroticism is how you react to negative events and negative feelings, right? So something bad happens and you're like, oh no, that's bad. You're, you know, a tiny bit high in neuroticism, but that's good. Now you react to it. 
if you're a little low in neuroticism, you know, something bad happens and you're like, okay, that's bad. What can we do to solve this? Okay. And that's obviously good too. There's, there's a bit of a range, but when you're really high in neuroticism, that's going to be pretty bad because now whenever anything, and it's about perception as well, it doesn't actually have to be real life bad. It's just bad in your head. You have this humongous over the top reaction to it. And that links kind of to the next personality trait of perfectionism. So this is this need to um, be or at least appear to be perfect. And again, moderation. This is actually a great thing in jobs and in uh, school. Uh, it's, it's conscientiousness, right? Oh, I have a duty to kind of meet these demands to get my schoolwork done, to study enough. And when you're trying to be perfect in, again, in moderation, this is actually pretty good because it's a, a great way to, to motivate you, right? You're striving to be really great. You're striving to attain accomplishment. You're going to probably do extra research to, you know, do better. You're going to do your due diligence to make sure that you're not doing it wrong. And we're motivated at this point for a payoff that it's going to work out really well. And it's going to turn out to be something awesome, but it can go too far, right? So if you have to be perfect, absolutely a hundred percent of the time, we start doing it instead as a motivation to better ourselves and to have more control, but to avoid pitfalls, to avoid looking stupid, to avoid getting a low mark. And it almost sounds the same, but it's flip sides of the coin. The third one is this idea of uh, self-efficacy. So, you know, do I feel like I have control over my behaviors? And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before with the external locus of control. If I think my behaviors are due to luck, even though it's because of my great skill, you know, then I'm not really going to feel rewarded when I do stuff. It's external motivation. With little children, for example, if they really, really like to do stuff, we should say stuff like, hey, great job. But we usually say stuff like, hey, great job. Keep it up. And now it's suddenly external. It's me telling you to keep it up, not because you internally like it. And that can kind of change our, our mindset. We want to have this confident ability. So you asked if there was different types of imposter syndrome and research shows five different types. I kind of consider them all as variations or on a continuum almost. So, you know, it isn't necessarily that if you're one type, you're not the other, but it kind of goes back into the idea of personality traits as well. So the, the names of them are the, the perfectionist, the super person, the natural genius, the soloist, and the expert. So we kind of already went over the perfectionist. This is when perfectionism is going too far and you've got that avoidance motivation and you've set unrealistically high goals that are basically bound to fail, all right? Imagine that you're the best at everything at some point, you're going to do a little worse. Even if it's still better than everyone else, it's not going to meet that expectation. So with perfectionism, even when you succeed, it's not super satisfying to them because maybe they could have done better. Um, the super person is a workaholic. And I, I mean, perfectionists are probably workaholics too. So you can see how these are all going to be start bleeding into each other. Um, but if you think that you're an imposter, you may push yourself to take on more than other people. So that way you measure up, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing really, really well, but just in case I'll do really well in 20%, 30%, 40% more than everyone else. And now look at this. Oh, wow. This person's doing so well and more than everyone else. Okay. And this, this is overload. 
So you mentioned the idea of perfectionism, and I kind of wanted to talk about that because I feel like that's one of the more bigger ones that affects us university students. Uh, and you mentioned the idea of people shifting from doing things because they want to get better at them versus people doing them just because to avoid a bad consequence. Do you have any experience or do you see that people shift from doing things to avoid a bad situation and go towards doing things because they want to improve themselves? Do you see a big difference in their performance and how they're able to you know, go about the work that they do? Yeah, for sure. I've got a, a couple different routes I could talk about with this, but the idea of doing something for yourself because you want to, because it's intrinsically interesting to you, that's going to shift from this kind of external motivation into an internal motivation. On top of that, you feel like you've got control over this as well. And those are kind of two of the hallmarks to um, this idea of explanatory style and locus of control, where the, the third one being related to others, right? And once you can kind of, and this will, I'll get into this if I get into more of these types of perfectionism as well, being related to the group, being in control of your behaviors, feeling like the outcomes are because of yourself, that those all are hallmarks of happiness, of well-being, of high self-esteem for your esteem needs, which are related to yourself, not coming from other people. And perfectionism, I know when I was in grad school, uh, I had a huge problem with that because I wanted to, as I'm writing, you know, my final paper that I've been doing for years, and maybe maybe it was imposter syndrome too. Like, am I faking my way through this? Do I actually have expertise in this? And I didn't want to write anything because I wanted it to be perfect the first time. And my PhD supervisor at the time, Jonathan Friedman, he told me, hey, how about this? Don't worry about being perfect. Um, he didn't use this language, but I, I don't know what kind of language you can use on this podcast. He said, write a page of crap. And he didn't say that, but a day. All right. And then at the end of the week, edit it. And even if you've only got one page, it's better than doing nothing all week because you're scared of failing and you've got zero. And, you know, my output was huge after that. And because I am actually good at what I do, I hope, you know, I was able to write this and it wasn't really that bad. And when I did come to edit it, it was more minor edits turned out really great. But just getting past that kind of perfectionist writer's block and kind of your mindset of where you're coming from, are you doing this because you want to do it? You know, are you doing this because someone else wants you to do it? Are you doing this because you want to learn about it? Or are you doing this for the grades. And usually when you do it for yourself and you start intrinsically learning it for yourself, the grades just come along with it. It's almost like we are our biggest obstacle as always. Oh, we're, we're a huge obstacle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned the different types of imposter syndrome and how it can manifest. I was curious to know if this is dependent on kind of like our environment. So how does one person go from becoming the perfectionist and the other might be the workaholic? I know that might be sidetracking a bit, but I just if you could talk about that. Yeah, no problem. I, I mean, this this brings us back in to the other types as well. It depends on your level of stress, depends on how many classes you're taking. It depends on your baseline personality as well. There's something called the big five. So it's your openness to experience, your conscientiousness, your extroversion, so outgoingness, your uh, agreeableness, and then neuroticism. So conscientiousness could potentially turn into perfectionism. And neuroticism could get into this high range where you're just, you know, you feel bad about everything. And all of these things can kind of spiral down, right? And it, it, we do find that with a lot of clinical diagnoses, um, mental disorders, depression, anxiety, it usually has to do with high neuroticism, which is also related to imposter syndrome. 
A lot of the times it's with the lower agreeableness, uh, which you know means that you're not interacting with people as much. And these things can be worked on and, and changed. There's a, a certain natural set point that you're potentially born with, but that doesn't really define us. A lot of it is our environment and our interactions and literally just our conditioning and learning. So I mentioned the, the perfectionist and the super person. Some people think that they have to be a natural genius at things. So natural geniuses think that they should be naturally good at something. And this is really rarely true. You know, you have to learn, you have to practice, you have to fail, you have to do all sorts of things to get really great at something. And, um, you know, it may come more naturally to you, but you're not going to be naturally good at it. And that's, that's a kind of a distinction that's pretty important. I also mentioned the idea of kind of agreeableness and extroversion. A lot of the times, imposter syndrome, you could be a soloist as well. So this is a, the fourth type. This is where, again, they don't think that they know enough about something. And if you don't know something about something, the best thing to do is either, okay, you could do a little bit of research on your own, but that takes time. We're in a university environment with tons of experts all around us. Why don't we just ask? Or even ask, you know, one of our friends in class that they may have taken a different class than us before that relates to it. But we're scared that if we ask the question, it makes us look like we don't know what we're doing, mm -hmm. which at the point we don't, right? <laughs> like that's, that's the whole <laughs> yeah. point. Um, and, and we think that we have to be super efficient and solve the problem on our own. So we don't want to ask someone because, again, that would reveal us as, you know, imposters. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge one, especially on um, online learning at the moment. If everyone's in the class and you have a question, sometimes you kind of don't want to ask a question because everybody's looking at you. Everybody, you know, sees your name pop off or your voice pop off. So it, it is a bit uh, stressful sometimes. Honestly, that was a problem even before uh, online learning. You know, when I was teaching, you know, pre-COVID, there again, people feel like there's this spotlight effect and it's a bias. It's one of our natural built-in biases where, you know, we think if we say something and we say something wrong, everyone's going to look at us and we're going to feel so stupid. But then you, you, what you have to do to change that perspective is if someone put their hand up to ask a question that they really wanted to know the answer to and they were partially wrong or fully wrong, would you think they were stupid? No. No, obviously not, right? So why would people think that of us? We naturally, because we know the most about ourselves, are at the center of our attention. Um, so we just assume that we're the center of everyone else's attention, but we're not, right? Everyone is kind of the center of their own attention. Mm -hmm. Now that we know what imposter syndrome is, can you give our listeners maybe some, you know, tips and tricks of how to deal with it, uh, to manage it, prevent it? This could be general tips or even like personal tips that you yourself use. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll have some general ones and some very specific ones, I think. So remember that I said that, you know, 70% of adults could be hit at one point in their life by imposter syndrome. So instead of thinking, how can we manage imposter syndrome? We should maybe be thinking, you know, A, how do we manage imposter syndrome? But also how can we prevent it from happening in the first place, right? And if we know it's because of neuroticism, perfectionism, feeling like we don't have control of our environment, and what we want to make sure that we do is schedule our time with an honest, adaptive coping strategy. Okay, so don't take too many classes. Don't take on too much work. Set goals that are realistic and honest rather than, you know, like what the best person in the, you know, in the world who's been practicing this for 50 years can do, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's the mindset that we have to come into. We should try to do our best, okay? But we should try to do the best to motivate ourselves to do well, not 
to motor, motivate ourselves to avoid doing poorly. And one of the best ways to do that is to, again, pay more attention, try to you know work towards a happiness. And you can do this in a bunch of different ways. There's all, all sorts of research on positive psychology and, and happiness psychology. But the easiest ways is to have that work-life balance. A lot of times when we schedule our time, like in our phone or in a calendar or something like that, it's all the work stuff that we have to do. I have to study at this time. I have class at this time. I have a paper due at this time. I have a test at this time. And the rest of your calendar is kind of blank. Well, what happens is, is that you start filling in those blanks with more work potentially because it's free time. Well, that free time should be scheduled at least partially to good stuff. Like maybe it has to be FaceTime, but or socially distanced, but hanging out with friends, you know, grabbing a coffee, working out, meal prep with healthy meals, actually scheduling, you know, eight to 10 hours a night for sleep. Because if you only schedule in a certain amount of time, you know, you have to imagine that it takes you a certain amount of time to fall asleep at night. And when you're really stressed out, you might start trying to do that rumination thing where you're thinking about all the bad things that you've done with no solutions, right? The common idea is that adults need eight hours of sleep at night. That's true in general on average, but university students who are still developing their brains, their brains develop, especially the frontal, you know, executive function, impulse control, responsibility, all of that stuff, ethics, that builds until 25 or 30, the research shows now. And when you're throwing in buckets and buckets of information from taking so many classes, you need that downtime to sleep. So get a lot of sleep, good quality sleep, eat really good quality food, work out, uh, mindfulness relaxation is really important too, whether it's, you know, like guided meditation or something along those lines. But even just sitting down for 15 minutes a day to try to be more introspective and to say, hey, this is my 15 minutes where I'm going to do nothing except for focusing specifically on relaxing, mindfully relaxing. Because that's totally different than sitting down for even 15 minutes or an hour or two hours and watching a show and turning off your brain, which is also great. You should schedule time for that. But the mindfulness is really what helps recharge you. Um, and if we can do all of kind of those things just in general, that's going to really, really help out our happiness levels. Some very specific things that I do still to this day that I learned, you know, back in grad school, I wish I would have known in undergrad, honestly, is about, again, balancing the time. So I try to schedule everything out and, and I have to reschedule too. You know, I'm, I'm a psychologist that talks about this and I still, it still affects me, right? One thing that really helped me is something called the Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro is a tomato. It used to be at one point when I guess when this technique was created, everyone had a, a kitchen timer in their house. I, you know, I just use my phone now or the microwave, but had this kitchen timer that had 25 minutes on it. It was shaped like a tomato or an onion or, you know, whatever. So the idea is, is that, you know, we stress ourselves out. And if we actually were less stressed, we could get more done more efficiently so less time. So even though I'm preaching, hey, work out and eat right and get lots of sleep, what the listeners might be thinking is, I don't have time for that. Well, research actually shows that if you make time for it, you do more studying than people that don't make time for it. People who work out with moderate to you know high intensity three times a week, their GPAs on average across university, um, so cumulative GPA is usually 0.4 higher. That's the difference between a 3.6 and a 4.0, right? Well, how, how, how are they doing? They, they're taking, you know, an hour or 15 minutes or a half hour, three times a week to work out. That's taking it away from, from studying, right? But it's resetting your brain 
so that you can get more information in in less time because you're rested, right? Rest is so important. Even when you are studying, you need rest. So again, going back to the Pomodoro technique, what I was finding back when I was in, in grad school, I would get in front of my computer at nine in the morning, literally sit there until four or three or four in the morning, you know, like the next day, get like a few hours of sleep and start the whole thing again. And I was getting zero done or I was getting all my work done in a panic at midnight. I started doing these Pomodoros and because I was, you know, forced to do this and I was also doing the write whatever you can. Don't worry about it being perfect because you can edit it later, right? If you start early, you can edit. You've got lots of time. So I was ending up after I started doing this and, and was doing it for about two or three weeks, I ended up doing two hours of work in the morning, getting all of my work done and then having lunch, maybe doing my emails for an hour. And then I would have the rest of the afternoon off. During busy times, I would work nine till five or six and I would have the evening off to go to the movies or to, um, you know, maybe study something for fun or maybe read a book or something like that. And, it, you know, it sounds, you know, amazing. And it is. It's really great to have that balance. So you've got set times. I think it's gotten even worse in COVID where because we're doing everything remote and we kind of can do it at any time and projects are due at, you know, midnight, we just end up working all the time. And I think we have to separate out our work lives from our live lives to make sure that we've got this balance so we don't stress ourselves out too much, so we don't burn out and we don't cause imposter syndrome to kind of raise its ugly head. Yeah, I really like that, especially the Pomodoro technique that you were mentioning. I don't particularly use that, uh, but I kind of do more like a time boxing kind of thing where I set out specific times where I want to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And it's really made a huge difference in what I'm able to achieve and the amount of time that I'm able to do it. And I actually feel that, you know, when you use that technique, I have more off time to just kind of have fun uh, than when I do just doing things however they come. So, yeah, that's that, that's a really great technique that I think everybody should try out. And this is actually another technique that I kind of feel is useful that I kind of use. This is not much as a short-term technique, but it's more of a long-term technique. So when it comes to stuff like imposter syndrome, I feel like a lot of times, you know, especially in university, we do a lot of things. We do a lot of extracurriculars and activities. After a while, you kind of start to forget about them. And then you're just sitting there one day and you're like, I don't, I don't do anything. Like, I feel like everyone else is doing a lot more than me. You go on LinkedIn and then everyone's like, oh, I got this job or, oh, I did this. So I feel like a good way to do that is kind of track your, um, I don't want to say successes because it's not just successes, track your activities and stuff like that, uh, whether it could be on a document on your laptop or a notes file on your phone or, or some sort of portfolio where you kind of document some activities that you've done, whether it's a conference, uh, like it, you don't have to cure cancer for you to put that on your list. It could be something simple, any activities that you do. And I think when you are feeling some sort of imposter syndrome, you could kind of look back on that and be like, you know what? No, like I've actually have done some things and you forget about them sometimes. So I feel like that's also a big reason why we feel like we're not doing enough because we do stuff and then we just forget about it after a while. So some sort of reminder, a way to keep track of what you've done. I feel like that's been extremely helpful for me. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things that you just said there, you touched upon two or three things that are, are really important within psychology. So keeping track of stuff and also maybe writing down what you're grateful for, you know, once a week. That's actually one of the eight steps uh, Sonia Lubomirsky from University of California has for happiness, you know, and, and then it, there's a bunch of other things with attention and social networks and stuff. 
you also mentioned, you know, you, you do all this stuff and, you know, then you go and go on LinkedIn or on social media. Social media is a really, it's great, but it's also a big problem because of course you're not going to go on LinkedIn and say, oh, I failed at this. You're going to only put all your successes, you know, same thing on Instagram and TikTok and, and Facebook and, you know, whatever it is, you usually don't put all the horrible things that happen. Well, maybe TikTok has that, but you put all the great things, right? It's like, I did this awesome thing and, you know, which it is kind of good unless you're doing it to put forward a face. If it was in private, like I, I stopped and smelled the roses today, or, you know, I did really well on this test and I feel proud of it for yourself, not what other, anyone else thinks. Because once you start putting it out on social media, it's for external validation and you really need the internal validation. That's super important. Uh, personally, for me, I actually do employ the Pomodoro technique. I actually double it up with um, study sessions with my friends. So that way, during the five-minute interval, instead of like going to TikTok, we'll just discuss among ourselves. And I feel like that's like a double booster um, when we're studying. Yeah, that's great. And you don't have to do anything for the five minutes. But, you know, if you're chatting about stuff, it's just you've just relaxed. You've turned off that kind of learning area of your brain. And then you're you're talking about a set. And the really neat thing, too, is from the memory li uh, literature is that, you know, so, for example, in a very extreme, people may cram right before a test. OK, 10 hours of cramming. If instead over 20 days or 40 days, so 20 days, you did a half hour a day or 40 days, you did a half hour every other day, that encoding of information and then pausing and letting it get more deeply encoded and then having to pull it back out it practice it, it helps you practice or train your brain to have those cues so it's more easily to get out when you do it in a big 10-hour block right before the exam it's messy and it's not encoded as well right but if you're activating encoding, activating, coding, activating, coding, those links, those neural links are there now. And when you get into the midterm, it's a lot easier. One other thing that I like to suggest to my students is to think about your study style, which is maybe still a throwback to high school versus the test style, right? And you could actually even use this in high school, but we didn't really need to because again, all the people in university were the best students in high school, right? So it's tailored to the average there and it's tailored to the average here in university and it's different. So a lot of the times our study styles is here's a topic I need to write down notes or memorize as much information as I possibly can about that topic. But the midterm is a question that you have to answer in a short form. So what you really should be doing in your study notes is getting all of your slides, getting all of your textbook, getting everything. Pick what is the most important. Hopefully if the prof is really great, then they're focused on the important stuff in class. It's not like they talked about something for two seconds and that's the 15 mark question on the midterm or the final. That kind of sucks sometimes. But so you focus on the important stuff. And then instead of saying topic information, you just put a question mark on the end or change it into a question or try to guess if you've got multiple midterms within one class, guess based on the last midterm, the style of question. It doesn't have to be perfect, but if you study in a question answer format, then when you get to the midterm, you don't have to do that mental kind of acrobatics in your head to change it into a question and answer format. You've already got it there ready. So it's, again, a, a more efficient way of studying. Definitely. And uh, you mentioned encoding and decoding, and I kind of wanted to go pivot a little bit to talk about intuition and how that plays a role, because oftentimes we can feel like a gut feeling that, oh, we're actually capable of doing something but imposter syndrome and our brain and all of our thoughts kind of serves as that suppression blanket that prevents us from actually taking those actions. So how do those two things kind of play and how does imposter syndrome oftentimes kind of triumph over our intuition? Yeah, it goes back to that 
that what I was talking about before that I kind of sneak into all my classes, attention, perception, introspection. We are naturally biased by our interactions before and our perceptions of those interactions before. I think I was an imposter gets reinforced. This happened, it reinforced. Again, my perception is, oh, this was luck, reinforced. But it actually was you. So our intuition can get to be our natural reaction to things, especially if we're a little bit more neurotic, especially if we're a little bit more perfectionist. Because this can also, these things also lead to like anxiety and depression and rumination, you know, thinking of the problems and how bad we felt about it without any solutions. So the best thing to do is to pay more attention. When an automatic thought comes into your head, actually sit down and think about it and be introspective about it and say, hey, is this actually what happened? Or is this, or if you think that the reaction is, this is the end of the world, catastrophic thinking, is it actually gonna lead to, you know, me dropping out of school and, you know, living on the street? Probably not, right? So what we wanna do is, catch ourselves and learn to do that. And probably the best way is not to do it in the moment, but every day just for practice as habit. Sit down at the end of the day and think, why did I do the things I did today? Because that way, after you do that for a certain amount of time, you become naturally good at it. And then when you are in the moment, you'll be like, wait a second, I know that that's my natural reaction, but I don't think that's actually correct. It's not accurate. So I'm gonna replace that with what is accurate. And from that point on, that's going to get start getting more and more reinforced. If you pair that with kind of the relaxation, stress reduction, work-life balance, getting a lot of sleep, getting good food to eat, so you're kind of ready before you go into the situation, I think it can really reduce or prevent this from happening, either being too stressed out and burning out or imposter syndrome. Perfect. Thanks so much. Those are some really, really good tips. And I hope that everybody will be kind of taking that into consideration and hopefully they help them all. I know I'm going to take some of these tips that we've learned today and try to apply them because imposter syndrome definitely does affect all of us. And that includes me as well. So thanks for that. Thank you so much, Dr. Huggin, for, you know, taking the time to speak with us and sharing your insights on this very relatable topic. To our listeners, like I said, we really hope you've learned something from it and will apply it to your lives. And just remember, the next time you're not feeling so confident about using your physics equations, just remember that the guy who created them wasn't either. Thanks so much, Dr. Huggin. Glad to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me here today. But wait, the episode's not over. Let's see what we've got in store for our quick bits. Hey, UI Biomatters, it's Manveer. In our segment today, we're going to answer FAQs about our program, McMaster, and life in general. Sarah Squared will be answering all of our questions today. The first question asks, I've been feeling kind of burnt out from both sets of midterms, and I'm not enjoying my classes anymore. Is engineering really for me? Over to you, Sarah. I think it's really important to recognize that at this stage in the semester, then everyone feels burnt out to some extent. Engineering as a whole is a bit of a grind, and sometimes you just have to take it day by day, week by week, or maybe even just like hour by hour to make it through. Um, but I know that you can get through this and know that everybody else around you is going through something very, very similar. Even if they don't necessarily express their struggles, know that you're not alone and that a lot of people are feeling the same way. I will say that if you're in first year, that's generally a lot tougher. 
uh, because you're just taking general courses. When you get into upper years, you can study more specific, relevant material to what you actually enjoy. And that can help um, kind of eliminate that sense of grind and that sense of desperation as you reach the end of the semester. They say you become the people who you hang around with. I want to change who I hang out with, but I can't find good friends. What do I do? I think we'll let the not-so-old, old Sarah answer this one. Thanks, Vambir. <laughs> I think that this is something that a lot of people deal with when they first come to university, especially. It's a really unique time in your life, and it's a really great opportunity to meet people that you really get along with. So the biggest thing is just remember to put yourself out there. Join clubs and go up to events for things that you're passionate about. Reach out to people in your class. Message someone on Instagram. DM them and put yourself out there. And also, don't feel pressure to make all of your friends right away the second you get to university. Um, I know personally my friend groups have changed every single year, and that's totally normal. And you can meet new people at any time. So just remember to put yourself out there and that everyone is probably going through something really similar. The next one comes from Twitter. At angry engineer who can't cook tweets, I am so tired of the food on campus. If I have to eat a bistro one more time, I might puke. What do I do? Well, seeing that young Sarah is also a Westdale culinary virgin. Ooh, a call. Hey, Melissa. Uh-huh. I can't use that word? My apologies, folks. Well, considering young Sarah is a Westdale culinary novice. Let's have still young Sarah answer this one. All right. The first thing I have to say is don't be afraid to go off campus. I know you probably feel like you should just stay on campus all the time, but there's some really good places that take meal card. There's Basilique, there's Pink's, um, there's some really good places in Westdale. There's this corn dog place called Chun Chung's, and it's really good. Um, there's also places in downtown Hamilton if you want to venture out and use that bus pass. There's a place called Hamburger, and Fortino's has pre-made meals, and it's 10% off on Tuesdays. So don't be afraid to venture out and explore Hamilton a little bit. For all you nervous about extracurriculars, the next question is, I see some of my classmates doing so many extracurriculars, but I'm drowning in all the homework. How do they do it? Sarah? Thanks, Manvir. I can take this one. I think it's really important to just start by recognizing that everybody's experience in university is different. And some people may put more of an emphasis on their academics. Some may put more of an emphasis on their extracurriculars. And whatever you decide to do and whatever you decide is best for you, then that is okay. Even if it's not what all your classmates are doing, just do what's best for yourself and everything will work out. If you are looking to get involved, I have a few tips. The first is to get involved slowly. So don't just sign up for five clubs at once and then all of a sudden you're flooded by all of the work you have to do for them. Start little by little, maybe add one each semester and build up from there. Additionally, you really want to just join clubs that you're passionate about. So look around, like message people on Instagram, reach out to, you know, different accounts that you find on Facebook and find things that you think you'd really enjoy. So then it doesn't feel like you're still doing homework, even if you are doing like a technical club. It feels like you're just using those skills in real life and applying your knowledge and you get really excited about it. You want to make sure you're getting involved for the right reasons and not just so it looks good on your resume or so you can add something to your LinkedIn. Additionally, I found that taking breaks from schoolwork um, to do an extracurriculars is really refreshing. So first of all, it's really important for your mental health to just take a break and not do schoolwork 24-7. Like that's not a fun time. 
So taking, having those extracurriculars scheduled and having meetings and going out and meeting friends to, you know, build a car or something, that will help you feel really refreshed. So when you return to your studying, you can actually get a lot more done. Hope that helps and have fun getting involved. Final question coming in from, oh, I Biomed Ambassador Manvir Bangu. This November, I challenged myself to grow a mustache, but failed miserably. My friend said it looked like a third eyebrow. How can I grow a great mustache like Dr. Najat? <laughs> I don't know about you, Sarah Squared, but this Manvir guy sounds really sad. Can you help him out? You know, Manvir, if you did these long kappas, maybe you'd know the secret. I'll just, I'll just put that out there, you know? Additionally, like, you just gotta realize, like, nobody can truly match Najat's charm. Like, come on, man. What were you expecting? That's all the questions for today. Check in next time to see what we have next. Hey, you've reached the end of this episode. Well, there's actually a bit more. Thanks for donating your brainwaves to us for this short amount of time. To keep up with what's on our minds, make sure to like and follow the podcast. We'll be releasing new episodes on the first Thursday of each month with a different set of hosts. Got a question, comment, or a suggestion on your minds? You can send a voice message at anchor.fm slash McMasterIBioman or fill out our online form at bit.ly slash brainwaves questions. Want to keep up with all things iBioMed? Follow our Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channels at MacIBioMed. And thanks to Lope Music Production for our background music. Until next time.